0: Um, I've learned that there's a big difference between when I go shopping on my own and when I go shopping sent by my wife. My trips to Costco is when I have no reason to be there other than I'm on the hunt for free samples. Uh, They're dangerous shopping trips. Because I go in without a plan, I go in without a purpose, and Costco has a way of making you, it convinces you you need something that you didn't even know existed before you walked into the store. And so I'll be walking around Costco's and all of a sudden I just got a cart full of meat and jeans and a garbage disposal and some real cheap light bulbs. And they're cheap. You got to get them. This brand new hot sauce I've never heard of before. Some keto ice cream bars. Right. And I'm not even halfway through the story yet. And it's, it's bad. It's bad. But when my wife sends me like it's different because she says we need these three things. And I'm like on a mission. I'm focused and I go and I, I don't know why it is, but I get those three things and I go right to the cash register and I get out of there. I'm focused, I have specific responsibilities and really what it comes down to is when my wife sends me and you've all been sent by someone to do something at some point, when someone else sends you, you're not in that place for yourself, are you? You're in that place for them. You're not there to do what you want, but you're there to do what they've asked you to do. And as we've been walking through our series on the Holy Spirit, we've seen that the Holy Spirit speaks, that the Holy Spirit encourages. And this morning, we're gonna talk about how the Holy Spirit sends. And if the Holy Spirit sends us, then the implication is this my life is not my own. I'm not here for me, I'm here for Him. There's a work that the Spirit has to do. And as a church, we've been reading through Luke and Acts, and we're just getting into Acts right now. Acts tells the story of the early church. In Acts chapter 12, the James, the brother of John, remember when Jesus walked the earth, he had 12 disciples, three that were closer to him, Peter, James, and John. James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod. This is the first of the 12 to be martyred for their faith. Acts chapter 12. James is killed for his faith. The Jewish leaders are so pleased with that, and Herod notices that. So Herod thinks, I'll make him happy, and I'll arrest Peter, right? Because I already killed James. Now I got Peter. We're going to shut this movement down early on. And so Peter is in jail, possibly awaiting execution, and the church begins to pray, and God sends an angel into that jail cell who leads Peter right out in front of the guards into freedom. And this all happens in Acts chapter 12, and so they're being persecuted, the the, the government is coming against the church, Herod is killing Christians, but it says that the word of God increased and multiplied. And so when we get to Acts chapter 13, we see a church that's in crisis, but also a church that has strength. And what we're going to see here in Acts 13 is that the Holy Spirit sends. So verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon, Lucius, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And Saul is the man who we know more as Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, remember week one, the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, they anointed them, they prayed over them, and they sent them off. And, by the way, this is, pres- this is descriptive more than prescriptive, which means it describes what they did more than it prescribes what we should do. But we do a lot of these th- things still, don't we? Because we see this throughout the New Testament. The church would fast, they would pray, they would worship, they would lay hands on each other and pray for one another. So that's why we still do those things. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia from where they sailed to Cyprus. And this is the beginning of the first of Paul's three missionary journeys. So Barnabas and Paul are set apart by the Holy Spirit, and they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. And this morning, I just want us to learn three things, and here's why I think this matters so much. Because so many people live lives like me in Costco's on my own. They don't really know what their life is about. They don't really have a purpose They don't really have a mission. Or if they have a purpose and a mission, it's not one that God has given them. And they're kind of wandering around, grabbing things, throwing things in their carts, hoping that that will make them happy and that will make them feel good. And then they realize how much it ends up costing them in the long run. But if the Holy Spirit sends us If he sends us, that means there's a specific way in which we can live our lives that will honor him and be the full abundant life that we're all looking for. So the first thing that we're going to see this morning is this, that the spirit sets us apart for his purposes. Now, what does it mean to be set apart? The word that you hear a lot in Christian circles is kind of an old-sounding word, sanctified or sanctification. And we hear of sanctified people, and we think only, only old saints are sanctified. Everybody else is still terrible sinners. But then when you get to a certain age, you're sanctified, you're set apart. And that word set apart, often we think it means to distance ourselves from people who aren't like us, to distance ourselves from people who don't like us to distance ourselves from people that we don't agree with, that don't see the things the way we see things, that don't vote the way that we vote, that don't dress the way that we dress. Sometimes we think that's what it means to be set apart, but that's not at all what the Bible is talking about when the Bible talks about setting us apart. Maybe we think in terms of like fine china. I don't know how many of you have china in your house. I don't know if that's still a thing or if it sort of seems like it's maybe more of a thing of previous generations, but I remember going into homes and there'd be entire cabinets in the dining room just displaying this beautiful china, this amazing stuff, and I'd be like, oh, when do we get to eat on that? And they'd say, never, (laughs) never. I'm like, well, it looks like a plate to me. (laughs) They're like, oh, it's a plate, but we don't eat off of it. What do we do with it? We just set it apart. And sometimes that's the way we think. God just kind of put us in a cabinet. He's like, just stay clean till heaven, and I'll get you then. Instead of thinking of ourselves as fine china, there's another thing that you see in kitchens, and they are kitchen gadgets. And I'm a gadget guy. I love kitchen gadgets. I don't know how to use any of them, but I appreciate what they all do for me. So I I, I love kitchen gadgets. And, you know, I I think there was a time 100 years ago where it was like if if you had a knife in your kitchen, you had a knife. This knife did everything. It spread the butter, it cut the bread, it sliced the meat, a knife. If you go, and this week I did it just out of curiosity. I went to Cutco's website. Don't bring your credit card with you. I went to Cutco's website and I looked at all the different types of knives. Now, thank God, somewhere along the way, probably more than 100 years ago, of course, somebody invented the serrated knife. Like, you can't, you ever try to cut bread with like a dull, sharp, or a dull knife? It's terrible. Serrated knife. But now on Cutco, they have cheese knives, not just one, multiple cheese knives they have a, they have they have a knife just for salmon literally just to get the skin off the salmon. There's like a hundred plus dollar knife. It's called the salmon knife. These are very specific things. There's all sorts of gadgets that we use in our kitchen. There's lemon zesters, which are just to get the rind, right? The zest off of a lemon or a lime. There's waffle makers, which are just used to make waffles. There's all kinds of specific things that we use. Herb scissors used to cut up your cilantro and your basil, all sorts of specific things. And those things are also set apart, but they're not set apart in a cabinet to never be used. They're set apart so that when the exact reason and they're needed, the chef can grab them and use them and accomplish what he wants to do. And that's the way that we're set apart. I should make T-shirts that say, I'm not fine China, I'm a kitchen gadget. (laughs) I'm not fine China, I'm a kitchen gadget. I'm not set up, here's what I'm trying to say. I'll make sense of all this. God did not, he did not set us apart to isolate us from the world. He set us apart to involve us in his work, in his world's. And for too long, in too many circles, many Christians have thought, I've been chosen by God. I've been set apart. I'm fine China. No, that's that's not who you are. You're a kitchen gadget. And when the chef needs you, you better be ready. Because there's a purpose for which he has set you apart. God set his people apart from the very beginning. And we see like in Genesis chapter 12, all the way back towards the beginning of the Bible, God goes, calls a man named Abraham who becomes the father of the Jewish people, who becomes Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the Israelites and the Jews come through and Jesus comes through that line. And when, Jesus goes, or when God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse one, he tells go, his very first word from him is not come or stay or remain, it's go. He says, go from your country, go from your home, go from your father's house, he's saying leave behind everything that you're comfortable with everything that you know leave it all behind and go to the land that i will show you when you get there who likes those instructions i'll tell you when you're there he says go and then he says i will make of you a great nation i will bless you and i will make your name great i think it's so incredible and so informative that the first time god calls an individual his first word is go Yeah, God brings us into himself. We sang about this morning how he brings us to himself. But God always brings us in to send us out. If God has brought you in, it's for one main purpose, to send you back out. In other words, there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. And there's no such thing as an unsent church. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, said it this way. He said, every Christian is either a missionary. Now, he was using the word missionary very broadly there not like career missionaries who go and move to another country. He's just talking about people who live on the mission of God, okay? Every Christian, every Christian is either a missionary or an impostor. What he's saying is either you're sent or you don't understand the first thing about the heart of God, because he's a sending God. The Father sent his son. The Father and the Son sent their spirit, or the spirit, and the spirit has been given to you and me so that we might be sent. God sends us out. You're not. God didn't bring you in just to get you to heaven. God didn't bring you in just to make your life better. That doesn't actually work, does it, usually? God didn't bring you in to make you nicer. God didn't bring you in to give you new friends. God didn't bring you in to rearrange your calendar. God didn't bring you in just to change what you watch, who you hang out with, where you go. And God certainly did not bring you in to make you comfortable. He brought you in to send you out. And so one of the greatest proofs that you're a child of God that you're a follower of Jesus and that you're being led by the Spirit is not what happens in a building like this on a Sunday morning. But it's what happens in your neighborhoods, in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, in your, in, in your coffee shops, in your interactions with the cash register person at Target, the, the person who makes your coffee every morning. Those, that is the evidence. Are you living as a person who has been sent? Now, to be sent means that God gets to direct and define our lives, our priorities. It means we have to leave things behind. It means, listen, sometimes our purposes for our lives will conflict with his purpose for our life. Let me ask this question. When's the last time that you did not follow your preference because you felt like the spirit was saying, I have something else for you? There's a life of self-denial, which is... Right at the heart of the Christian faith, I deny myself to follow Christ, to be sent by him for his mission. Not, in, not to rob me of anything, but actually to bring me into the fullness of who he created me to be. All right, so the Spirit sets us apart for his purposes. The second thing we see in this text is that the Spirit sends us to do his work. The Holy Spirit said, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them to do. Which leads us to the question, what is the work? What is the work that God has given us to do? What is the work that the Spirit wants us to do? And I was reading an article this week, and I thought somebody that I, I thought this summarized it very well. The work of the child of God. There's many things we could say, but here's one aspect of it: is to make the invisible God visible to people around us. To make the invisible God visible to people around us. To, to the way in which we treat people, the kindness of our words, the generosity of our lives. The way in which we open up our hands and our homes and our hearts to people and and let them in. The way in which we walk with people through the valley. The way in which we celebrate people when they're on the mountaintop and we're not. The the way in which we allow the Spirit of God to lead us and direct us. Uh, All of those ways are ways that we make the invisible God visible to a world that's desperate to see and know. You know what most of the world does? They go after visible things trying to get to the invisible. Visible, tangible experiences, substances, relationships, uh, accomplishments, achievements, resumes. They grab the visible in hopes that it will give them the invisible. Peace, joy, hope, patience, kindness, the love of the Father. So what do we do? As Christians, we have the work of making the invisible God visible to people around us. We do this by bearing his image well and by Extending his reign and rule over all of creation, and Jesus showed us this, didn't He? He came and He made the invisible visible. He said, actually, in what did I, where was it? John fourteen nine. He said to the crowd, "If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father." And in fact, in Hebrews 1.3, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. He was the perfect image bearer. You and I were created in the image of God, but sin has broken and marred the image that we have. Yet Jesus, the perfect image bearer, allowed his image to be marred beyond recognition so that our image could be restored. And someday in the presence of God, we will have resurrected bodies and renewed souls and right spirits, and we will perfectly bear his image again on that day. But Jesus came as the exact representation of the Father, and he inaugurated the kingdom of God by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now this work that we've been called to do, it doesn't just happen inside church walls or at church events or at church programs. This work is an all-of-life work. Every area of life, every corner of our community, every layer of society, there's a work for the Spirit for us to do that the Spirit is sending us to do His work. What does this look like? I mentioned this a little bit, but it looks like maybe choosing hospitality over convenience. I get it, it's more convenient to just kind of like keep that circle tight and just let the people in that you know should be in. But the early church. I mean, I've been reading through Acts with some men in the church. The early church, one of the most distinguished marks about the early church was their hospitality their generosity. They shared everything with each other. Yeah, they still had their personal possessions and they were not compelled or required to give their stuff away, but they voluntarily gave so that no one was without food and no one was hungry and no one was suffering because of the hospitality. And the reason, by the way, one of the primary reasons historians say why the Christian faith went from being basically a ragtag bunch of guys believing and talking about Jesus to the official religion of Rome in 300 years, explosive in that sort of way, one of the main reasons was the beauty of the lives of Christians. The hospitality and the generosity that when a plague would hit Rome, the Christians would stay and and even at possible harm to themselves, care for people. And there was something about their lives and something about their community that the Romans and the Gentiles and the Greeks and the other Jews said, I don't even, I don't know if what they're saying is true, but their lives are so beautiful and their community is so incredible. I got to know more. I got to take a look. Here we are 2,000 years later, And sometimes it feels like that's not an attractive, that's not part of what we do anymore. It's not about the beauty of our lives. It's about the things that we know and the things that we believe. But beauty itself is one of the greatest arguments for God, the beauty of our lives. And so what does this look like? Hospitality instead of convenience. Generosity instead of accumulation of stuff. And community instead of isolation. Choosing the messiness of doing life together. Community is hard, right? I mean, everybody likes it in theory, and then you try it out. And you realize, like, oh, people are annoying sometimes. (laughs) That person, you know, frustrates me. That person says something I don't agree with. And if you're going to be a part of any community that you didn't hand select, like the group you're sitting with right now, what that means is you're going to be a part of people who at some point are going to bother you, annoy you, disappoint you, frustrate you, let you down. But there is a way in which the community of God is so much stronger than even those things because we're not gathered around how much we like each other. We're gathered around a shared love for Jesus and a shared love for the mission that the Spirit has sent us to do. This is going to cost us something, but it leads me to this question. What is the cost of not doing his work? What's the cost of not being sent? Communities, neighborhoods live and die without having a church that loves them. I'm not saying church building. I'm saying the people. A community will live and die without a church of people, People, the people of God, loving them and running towards them and serving them. Homes and hearts in our community in Clay and in Syracuse will not hear an accurate and adequate presentation of the gospel and wasted lives. Not just their wasted lives, but our wasted lives. No one wants to climb a ladder their whole life just to realize at the end they climbed the wrong ladder. But is it possible that some of us, even in our, even in our fastidious keeping of God's rules and our intense uh, um, doing all the things we're supposed to do, we show up at church and we serve and we give and we do all these things. But, it, but if we are not sent, if we're not living a life beyond these walls that is making the invisible God visible to people who need to see God, then it's very possible we're climbing up the wrong ladder with all the right intent and with all the passion that we could possibly muster up. But it's the wrong ladder. We, we were looking for opportunities to make him seen. What if the beautiful life has nothing to do with our homes and our cars and our careers, our retirement accounts, our social media followings, our vacations, our comfort, our convenience, our endless consumption? What if the good life, the beautiful life has nothing to do with it? What if the beautiful life is being sent to do his work? And this week, as I've been working on this message, I thought this question, what is, what is the mission of my life? What is the work that my life is committed to? If somebody followed me all week long and saw the way that I invest my time, my talent, and my treasure, and, and could see into my mind and the things that fill my mind and see into my heart and the things that fill my heart, what would they walk away thinking I care about most? The mission, the passion of my heart. And I was convicted this week to say, God, you have such a work to do in me so that I would be willing to spend my life doing your work as opposed to trying to build my kingdom and do my work. All right, last point this morning. The Spirit sends us with his message. So after they pray on, over Barnabas and Saul or Paul, they send them out, they get on a boat, they sail to Antioch and Pisidia, they walk into a synagogue on the, on the, on the Sabbath, and somebody uh, reads from the Old Testament. And then the local leader of the synagogue, I don't know if he knew that Paul used to be a, a Pharisee or what the deal was, but he looks at Paul and he says, Does anyone have an encouraging word that you want to share? And if you study the life of Paul, all Paul needed was a slight slight crack in the door. So Paul's like, yeah, actually I do. And he gets up and he begins to preach. And I want us to jump into the middle of his message, Acts 13, 28. He says, and though they, he's speaking of the Roman rulers and the Jewish religious leaders, though they found in him, speaking of Jesus, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So he's telling them about the events that had just happened not very long before this. And then they had carried out all, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Come on, that's, that's really good news. But God raised him from the dead. If Jesus didn't walk out of his tomb, then you and I would have no chance to walk out of ours someday. So this is good news for all of us. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses, eyewitnesses. Over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus Christ over the course of 40 days. They became eyewitnesses to this fact, this historical event. Verse 32, and we, as a family, as a community, we bring you the good news That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us through their children by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What Paul is doing is he's showing them how the Old Testament was all pointing to Jesus. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, Paul doesn't say as for the opinion, the possibility, the idea, the theory, the myth, the rumor, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, see, every single one of us has a purpose of God to serve right here, right now, in our generation, he fell asleep, which means he died, and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So basically, What Paul is doing here is he's saying the Old Testament was that was not a prophecy about David because David did die right. It was about Jesus who died and rose from the dead. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man of forgiveness or though this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. (laughs) So what Paul does here is brilliant. He uses the Old Testament law to help them see how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of it. But then at the end, he also says, by the way, the Old Testament law wasn't enough. It could only show you how sinful you were. It could only show you your need for a Savior. But it could not fully reveal the Savior until Jesus came. And so what the law couldn't do, Jesus did, freeing us from our sin, our shame, and our guilt. Now, what we get here is a little snapshot of what Peter and Paul, well, Paul here, but Peter and other places, whenever they preach, they kind of preached similar things. As Pastor Antonia comes, we're going to sing in just a minute. I just want to show you three things, three things, because sometimes people say, well, what do I, how do I share my faith? And how do I tell people about who Jesus is to me? I want to talk to you about three different aspects of what it means to have a faith or a worldview. And I'll be brief here. Uh, Tim Keller, earlier this week in a tweet, he said, We come to know something well, okay, so if you call yourself a Christian this morning, we come to know Christianity or Jesus well, one, if there are good reasons for it, okay, in other words, it has to be intellectually credible, good reasons, reasonable, rational, not demonstrably proven, but reasonable, Number two, if it fits with our inward experience, which means it's existentially satisfying, it works, it helps me, your faith gets you through things, it gives you courage, it gives you strength, it gives you hope. And then number three, Keller says, so it's reasonable, it, it resonates inside, and number three, we find a trustworthy community of people who are also committed to it, okay? So those are three important aspects of your faith if you're gonna share them. This is the way I've tried to simplify it a little bit. What we know reasonable faith, how it helps, how it strengthens us, how it works within us, and then who it connects, who does it connect us to. And so when we're talking with people about our faith, each of these is important to be able to pull from. If you wanna picture these as three big buckets, here's what I know and here's why I believe it. Here's how my faith strengthens me and helps me. And this is what I've learned about other people who share my faith with me, okay? And so as you're sharing your faith with people and inviting people into your life, these are the three that you're pulling from. So what do we know? Well, this is kind of an intimidating one because you're like, I never went to Bible school. I didn't train. I don't understand apologetics. I don't know how to defend the faith. You know, Peter and Paul didn't do a lot of defending the faith. You know what Peter and Paul did? They kept talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you know why? Because the entire Christian faith rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christianity is the only faith that rises and falls on a historical event, a very specific historical event. And so this historical event, either it happened or it didn't happen. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then we are the most miserable people in the world. Who cares about anything else Jesus said? But if Jesus predicted his own death and his own resurrection and pulled it off, you got to listen to him. you got to pay attention to him. You can't ignore him. You have to hear what else he has to say. So sometimes I, 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 um, I'll be talking with someone who says, I used to be a Christian, but I've walked away. I'm, I don't, I'm not a Christian anymore. And one of the questions, first off, lots of, uh, you know, I encourage lots of listening. Lots of listening. More than lecturing. we got to get better at this, guys. We like to lecture. We don't like to listen. But sociologists and psychologists say that being heard is—it feels so similar to being loved. And so we listen well because we have a Father who listens to us, right? So we listen. We don't lecture. But when I'm listening to someone about their journey of faith and they say, I no longer am serving Jesus, I don't believe, this is a question at some point I want to ask them, not in an annoying, obnoxious sort of way, but from my heart. Tell me what changed about what you believe about the resurrection of Jesus. Did you used to believe that he was resurrected and you no longer believe? And what evidence did you come across that changed your belief? And most of the time, these friends of mine, these individuals, they've, that's, not what they're, that's not why they're leaving the faith. They're not leaving the faith over the resurrection. They've not even thought about the fact that Christianity doesn't rise on fall and whether or not you like it or get along with it or think it's done well through history, which often it hasn't. Christianity rises and falls on this event. Did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? So this is, this is what we know. Secondly, we move from his story to our story. How does it help? No one can argue with your story what has Jesus done for you? How has he strengthened you? How has he brought you through your seasons of suffering and sorrow? How has he studied your heart? How has he changed your marriage? How has he changed your relationships? And then lastly, who does it connect? Who has it brought you together with? Now, you need all three. If you only have one of these, it's not going to be enough. If you only have reason, but you don't have an experience, it won't carry you through the worst moments of your life. It just won't. And if you don't bring, if you don't live in, if you have reason but no community, then you have no one to, to grow alongside of and no iron sharpening iron, right? If all you have is experience, but you don't know that it's true, you could be in, you could be in a cult for all you know, because existential experiences can be delivered in all sorts of ways. It doesn't have to be true to make you feel good. So it can't just be how it feels. It's very subjective, but also it can't just be the community that you're connected to, because guess what? The Christian community is not perfect. It's a mess. There's a lot of brokenness in it. And so we need all of this together. And this is the message that the Spirit is sending us out with, the story of the resurrected Jesus Christ, the way it's changed our lives, and the people that it's united us to, that we're now doing life with people that we wouldn't have chosen for our own. But because we both have experienced the goodness of God, the love of Jesus, we put our faith and trust in his work. It allows us, it allows us to do life together. And when we share this faith, I said we move from lecturing to listening. We, we move from condemning to compassion, and we move from pushing people to pacing with people. No one gets pushed into heaven. No one gets pushed into faith. We walk with people. We go with them. We listen. And we trust that the Holy Spirit can do what we can't do. So remember, the Holy Spirit sets us apart to do his work, to share his message in his power. Let's pray together.